The matter of reparations is one of making amends and direct redress, but it is also a question of citizenship. In H.R. 40, this body has a chance to both make good on its 2009 apology for enslavement and reject fair-weather patriotism, to say that a nation is both its credits and its debits, that if Thomas Jefferson matters, so does Sally Hemings, that if D-Day matters, so does Black Wall Street, that if Valley Forge matters, so does Fort Pillow, because the question really is not whether we will be tied to the somethings of our past, but whether we are courageous enough to be tied to the whole of them. The spirit of incarceration dwells here. And then we're moving by the pack, so we're moving them. And even if you don't, then you do, because you're cool with them. They be like, I only went to school with them. So... Here we are on our second episode of Color Correction. Well, let's just do quick intros. I'm Andrew, Asian, he, him. I'm Chris, white, I'm also he, him. And I'm Bethany. I am a black woman. I am also full of black mermaid magic, and I use she, her pronouns. Right. I wanted to snap to the microphone then, but that's, that's so played out. So let's start off by talking about uh, some feedback slash corrections we have from our last episode. One thing that I wanted to correct was that I had talked about the Red Guard, a kind of Asian Black Panther organization that actually came out of San Francisco Chinatown, not New York Chinatown. I think that was my East Coast bias showing through. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I said that above the um, per capita rate of blacks, the only group that is incarcerated more is indigenous people. In fact, black people are the highest incarcerated what I'm looking at is indigenous people make up 0.9% of the general population in the United States and 1% of the prison population. So they actually round out the bottom in both areas. Black people are 13% of the general U.S. population and 40% That's of insane. the prison population. Yeah. So, Any other feedback anyone wanted to mention from the last episode? Not that I can think of. Okay. No. One thing that I was thinking about, and depending on how long this takes to edit, this might be old news considering how quickly the news cycle happens, but the president's tweets the other day about the freshman congresswoman telling them that they should go back to their countries. Yeah. And it was interesting to me in the context of our conversation about how the term person of color doesn't really distinguish between different experiences. And here's this tweet from the president kind of assuming that they're all foreigners when really only Ilhan Omar is an actual immigrant. Right. And I thought that was really interesting. And then in defense of the president, Mike Pence mentions how there's an Asian cabinet member, Elaine Chao. Again, kind of homogenizing everybody's yep. experience into one thing. On the other hand, the fact that they were all painted with that same brush kind of gave people something to rally around, mm -hmm. which I thought was also interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like us people of color are rallying around the idea that we have always been treated like we don't belong, no mm -hmm. matter what, by white people. Um, and I think that's something that experience really unites us. Yeah. The fact that one of the congresswomen is a black woman, I'm trying to find everybody's names right now. I was trying to do the same thing. Yeah. So Ayanna Presley is a black woman. Yes. And she is not an immigrant. She's from Chicago. I typically haven't thought about the idea that black people aren't thought of as belonging, but for some people that's the case. They don't, mm -hmm. when they think America, they don't think black. Mm -hmm. 
I did read that Ilan Omar has been a naturalized citizen longer than Trump's wife. That's correct. And I believe that to be true. Yeah. Hmm. So it's very interesting that there's this idea of brown and black immigrants not belonging. But as hard as Trump goes about immigration, there's nothing that he ever mentions about his wife being a naturalized citizen as well. Right. Yeah. Convenient. Whiteness. Yeah. Whiteness is often <laughs> For obvious reasons. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, let's get into the episode. Yeah, let's do it. So what we want to talk about today is the topic of reparations. And Bethany, you had an interesting experience. Wouldn't it be amazing if every episode began with just us talking about some interesting experience that Bethany had and that was just our springboard for whatever I, we talk about? I, that, this is the second I think row. I think it's a very... I, we could. We, we very Bethany easily could. Bethany just has experiences and then mm-hmm. we just talk about them. This yep. is just commentary on Bethany's life. Yeah, really, this podcast is mostly going to be about Bethany. All right. Also because Bethany is a bit ridiculous. All right, so let's, let's hear about what happened to you. So, I had started with Facebook again. I saw a what I thought was an article, and it turns out that it was just a tweet that got um, published with a picture. But I saw this picture, and it looked like it was an article titled "Venmo Your Black Friends Fifty Dollars for Juneteenth," uh-huh. and it sounded like a great idea to me. Uh, so what I did was reposted the article and then I consistently like posted about it on Facebook and I actually didn't expect anybody to take me seriously. I kind of hoped that people took me serious because, you know, $50 is gas money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't expect anybody to take me seriously. And a ton of people took me seriously. I actually ended Juneteenth with $240. Wow. Six different people gave me between 20 and fifty dollars. Also, do you feel like this is the moment to like tell people your Venmo account? <laughs> <laughs> I should shout that out at the end. Um, see if I can get some more reparations. Yeah, why not? But I thought it was really interesting that people were taking reparations seriously in that way, mm-hmm. and also making it this really personal interaction between their black friends <clears throat> and their black friends' experiences in America. Um, so. I felt guilty about it. I felt like I was kind of manipulating white guilt into making some money in my pocket. So I ended up donating all of the money uh, or half of the money to the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund and the other half of the money to our team at Circle of Hope, Circle Mobilizing, because Black Lives Matter. Mm. Um, but I ended up texting Andrew all day every time somebody <laughs> Venmoed me money. Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, it was really funny. Like, a lot of people sent me money. So, Andrew, what were your thoughts on me? We both came to the conclusion that I shouldn't keep the money, but what was your reasoning behind it? Part of it is I definitely think the same impulse that you had, which is I don't want to take advantage of people's guilt or I don't want anyone to be able to accuse you or us of being predatory or like benefiting in some weird way. The other side of it, giving your black friend money, part of me thinks that's just a little too easy. Yeah. Uh, What's the lesson in that? Yeah. I mean, you you give away money and maybe you feel a little better about yourself or something. I'm thinking about a friend of mine, uh, but he's a conservative guy. He's in the army. Mm. So what he really gravitates toward is stories of people stepping up to take care of problems. For instance, churches donating supplies to the border crisis, for instance. Like he's really into stuff like that. Um, And I feel like that attitude isn't unusual. People Mm -hmm. who are like, oh, the church can Mm -hmm. take care of it. You know, private citizens can step up and help solve these problems. We don't need big government intervention. And he's trying to figure out different ways of navigating these feelings that he has, which is, I think, is part of 
part of his attraction to that kind of way of solving these problems. And I feel like sometimes people think like giving money to a homeless person is going to solve homelessness, right? Right. Or they think a short-term mission is going to solve like economic injustice in the third Mm -hmm. world. Um, And I feel like, or I would be cautious about somebody thinking that reparations is just, you know, I'll give 20 bucks to my black friend. And that's reparations when the problem is much deeper and more systemic. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It was fun for the day, though. (laughs) But let's talk a little bit more about reparations and the history of reparations in America. So it started with this idea of all freed slaves receiving 40 acres and a mule. And I did a little bit of research that I'm going to try and pull up um, about what that would uh, come to in America today. Mm. So according to a historian and researcher, William Darity Jr., if we take a conservative estimate of the total number of slaves who had attained emancipation at the close of the Civil War, um, we would guess about 4 million persons were freed. And 40 million acres, that would equal about 40 million acres of land uh, per family. Mm. And that would be valued at $400 million that should have been uh, distributed to ex-slaves in 1865. That would amount to more than $1.3 trillion owed to African-Americans, Black folks in America today. Mm -hmm. Um, And quite frankly, I just don't think the U.S. has that to give to Black folks. That's probably one of the big reasons. Uh, Actually, no, racism is a big reason why um, America doesn't want to give reparations to black citizens but also like practically speaking what we are owed america does not have yeah i mean there are different ways to calculate what reparations would be Uh well let's roll it back a little i don't want to get too high context immediately why don't we talk first about what are reparations what is the concept of it and what's the idea behind it so reparations is this idea of repairing a harm uh, that has been caused. And uh, again, William Darity defines it as an acknowledgement of a mm-hmm. grievous injustice, redress for the injustice, and closure of that grievance held by the group subjected to the injustice. So it's basically this idea of, hey, I did something to you. Mm-hmm. I need to acknowledge that I did something to you. Yeah. And I need to figure out how to repair it after I've acknowledged this thing. Mm-hmm. And I think America just acknowledged uh, the ugliness of the history of slavery and racism in America just in 2010 with President Obama, I believe. Was there like an official statement? I believe there was an mm-hmm. official mm-hmm. apology mm-hmm. for slavery in okay. 2010. We might have to fact check that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, just bringing it just down to the ground level, just on an individual basis. I don't think well, we have a whole section of the court system for that. Yeah, there are different legal remedies that are available if, if you hurt someone mm-hmm. and, and they deserve to be compensated for that injury. Yeah. Even outside of the legal system, it feels just to us that when you wrong someone, you should do something to make up for it. Right. I mean, every like every four-year-old knows that. Right. So what we're talking about here is the same concept, but on a bigger systemic level. Mm-hmm. Reparations isn't unique in that bigger systemic context because other groups have been compensated. The German government compensated Holocaust survivors. The American government compensated survivors of the Japanese concentration camps. Slavery is unique because it's so fundamental to why this country is successful. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the injury of slavery wasn't ever really 
healed or ameliorated. Yeah. Instead, it was compounded even after the Civil War. Well, and, and even when we talk about like that 40 acres, like mm-hmm. it went back to the previous owners. It went back to the people who owned slaves on that mm-hmm. land. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's interesting, Bethany, that you said the U.S. doesn't have the money to pay back what's owed to black people. Because there are different ways of calculating how those, what those reparations would, would look like. Mm-hmm. The idea of straight up giving money to descendants of slaves is one way. But there are other proposals talking about trying to roll back the systemic injustices against yeah. black people. For mm-hmm. instance, making it easier for black people to be property owners. Yeah. Making it easier for black people to go to college. I mean, there are different proposals that exist. Some of the things that I have thought of, uh, there, I would say the 80s and 90s consisted of a lot of respectability politics. And there was this idea that black people could escape racism or transcend racism uh, if we pursued our educations. Because of that, a lot of us have a ton of student loans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've even thought of what would it look like if the government forgave all student loans of descendants of slaves? Um, that would take me about 40 G's out of debt immediately. Mm. Mm-hmm. Something that I just started considering is the fact that even if black folks were allotted reparations, I think systems would begin to shift to ensure that systemic racism racism existed. Mm-hmm. So I think if we gave black folks $400,000 or even... Um, allotted them homes and property, I think property taxes would start going up in black neighborhoods. Well, I mean, and there is a precedent for what you're saying. Yeah. The whole idea of redlining comes right out Mm -hmm. of... Right out of a government policy. Mm-hmm. A government policy that was made to address that issue. Yes. I mean, people say that racism is a virus that keeps mutating. Uh, in case some of you haven't heard of what redlining is, it was this system, especially in American cities, where uh, loan officers did not afford uh, black folks loans to live in houses outside of a certain area. Mm-hmm. And it's rumored that they would use a red pen or a red marker to mark the areas in which um, black folks would be allowed housing. And because of that, um, and because of uh, the fact of systemic uh, poverty in black communities, the housing, like the taxes of houses really can't fund a lot of schools. So that's mm-hmm. how uh, segregation just mutated in this way that, yeah, right. schools are no longer legally segregated, but because of redlining, the school districts and school systems were still segregated. And it was even worse because once you remove the language of race explicitly, people throw their hands in the air and say, it's not racism. The school's not actually segregated, but right. it is. Mm-hmm. What I think is interesting about the discussion on around reparations is how it's really heated up in the past few years. Mm-hmm. Beth, you had linked me that Chappelle sketch. Dave <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chappelle was genius yeah. in the early 2000s. Yes. And that was actually the first time I ever heard of reparations. Uh-huh. I remember Probably watching that too. skit uh-huh. and having to ask my mom what reparations were. So oh. if you if you haven't uh, seen this Dave Chappelle skit uh, from about 2003, I think it was the second season, Dave uh, creates a skit in which black folks are afforded reparations. And it's just like a mass melee of ridiculousness. Like oh. dice games are going for like $10 million. 
Um, I think somebody randomly just buys a truck full of something and it ends up being the ending of his show. uh, The guy honking the horn. Um, There's a character that's doing the weather forecast and he's similar to, um, I think it's that weatherman, Al Roker. Roker. Um, But he starts talking like he has this deep voice and he's like, I don't care about none of this. Like (laughs) it's a really hilarious skit, but that was my introductions Uh to reparation. And it always made me, Initially, it made me feel like reparations was a silly concept. Uh And I think that was the idea of a lot of black folks. A lot of black leaders in the 90s and early 2000s were totally not into the idea of reparations. Mm -hmm. I think they felt like it was a handout that we didn't need from white folk. Mm. Yeah, I honestly think that that was probably my impression the first time I saw it. And the the attitude that reparations is a silly idea or is impossible or that the crime was so long ago that there's no way to remedy it Mm -hmm. has been the main way of thinking about reparations for most of our history. Uh, Right now in 2019, we're a few years into a conversation that I think was really brought to attention by Ta-Nehisi Coates' 2014 article, The Case of Reparations. Right. He, He brought to light a house bill that actually has been introduced was introduced every year from 1989 to 2015 from a from a congressman Jim Conyers. That's where Tana Hesse gets his gets his start. Like he's really referencing that House bill. Right. And just a few weeks ago, there was a committee hearing where it was on Juneteenth. I think it that's was on like Juneteenth. A, okay. Yeah, I think that's like a historical tradition that if there's a reparations bill presented, that it's presented on Juneteenth. And the House committee hearing was specifically on the subject of forming a committee to not even it's not even a proposal on reparations. It's a committee to look into, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, yeah, to look into what reparations might look like in the United States. Correct. Well, well, there's been arguments that it's already been remedied, right? The turtle-looking guy said that... Uh, Mitch McConnell. Obama, that's him, mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell. <laughs> um, he argued that having a black president, President Obama, serves as our reparations. Um, what did he? What did he also say in the last in the last couple of weeks regarding reparations? That like, there's no one living um, who owns slaves, so it's kind of a moot point. Right. Again, Which totally ignores uh-huh. the systemic and sustaining issues. I mean, let's address that yeah. really yeah. important point. Just like earlier I was talking about how a friend of mine has a certain attraction toward private citizens stepping up, there are certain segments of American thought that say that if an individual doesn't didn't intend to do it, if an individual isn't alive anymore to pay for the crime, then there's no way to remedy for it mm-hmm. because it's all about an individual and the choices that they make. Well, I think that's a school of thought that really comes from white supremacy. So I read White Fragility or I listened to White Fragility um over the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And Robin DiAngelo describes the white thought on racism as this thing in which an individual actor harms a black person or a person of color. But there's no acknowledgement of how that individual actor or that act uh, plays into a system. Mm -hmm. It's all viewed as very individualistic. Right. And I think that's what's happening with the idea of reparations, that there were individuals that lived a very long time ago and did very, very bad things. But we can't do anything about those individuals now. Thank God they're gone because they're not doing that thing anymore. Mm -hmm. But that thing is still alive and well. Mm -hmm. Racism is like the air that we breathe. We don't always see it. But it's absolutely there and it absolutely sustains the system that we live in. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I'm thinking about is the biblical concept of collective repentance. Mm -hmm. 
In the book of Jonah, for instance, the city of Nineveh has to repent collectively. They all did something wrong, and they all have to repent. Or over and over again in the Old Testament, Israel is called to repentance. It's not individuals, it's the people. Yeah. Ta-Nehisi Coates in 2014 actually starts his article, his, uh, his article in The Atlantic, with a quote from Deuteronomy 15. Mm-hmm. Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 to 15. Basically talking about the rules for slavery in ancient Israel. The idea is that after somebody has been your slave, they have to be freed after seven years. You send them out compensated. Liberally out of thy flock and out of thy floor and out of thy wine press is what the King James says mm-hmm. and what ta Coast quotes. So this idea of reparations, this idea of r- making somebody whole, mm-hmm. it's there in the first five books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And the, that concept, that same concept of restorative justice appears again and again uh, in the Old Testament. The idea that once a wrong has been done, it needs to be repaired. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's calling us to the reconciliation that Christ is always calling us to, right? It's mm-hmm. really hard to be reconciled with somebody if there's not reparations. The passage that immediately comes to mind for me is in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is Jesus encounters Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Mm-hmm. And Jesus sees this guy who's in a, in a sycamore tree, and he says, today I'm going to dine at your house, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, in his interactions with Jesus, he's a tax collector. He's been cheating people out of their money. He's like he's like a pariah among his people. Right. Um, he's so moved with his interactions of Jesus, with Jesus, that he, uh, okay, I have it here. Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And that, again, that sounds like reconciliation. Before yeah. I can be back in my community mm-hmm. and amongst my people, I need to repair this harm that I caused. And I'm going to do it four times over. Yeah. Because, because I want to be back in relationship yeah, with my people it, again. Yeah, because it looks like something. There's a, there's a practicality to being in community, to, mm-hmm. being, to being right with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of that ownership does belong to the church. Um, I think oftentimes the church tries to distance itself um, from its close affiliation and support of the racist system in America. Oh, yeah. And the church was a huge player. Yeah. The church is absolutely implicated in lots of instances of racism. The question that we would have knowing that is what is the church's role in reparations? Because churches have apologized in the past. There have been these public apologies that mm-hmm. come up now and then. But what what is the church's role in advocating for reparations? I think it starts with the church advocating politically. I absolutely think there are so many politicians that claim to be Christians, Mm. but have these really harmful and terrible views on American politics and American people, specifically black people. So so I think it looks like church leadership going to um, especially very wealthy church leadership going to their local um, congressmen and congresswomen and saying, hey, you need to push push this forward. My experience of the church's role in politics Growing up as an evangelical. Probably as, not good. Yeah, mainly uh, mainly like the church should be apolitical unless it's some very specific issues. Like, sure. Abortion. Like abortion, like abortion. Abortion is the main one. Or homosexuality. Right. There are traditions, including the tradition that Circle of Hope is in, which is very skeptical of the government in general mm-hmm. and generally thinks that the church needs to keep itself separate from the influence of the government and the military mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. 
What do you guys think of that? I, I agree, um, but I don't think that we are removed from our context. Yeah. Um, I don't think that means we're apolitical. I think that means that our, our politics are governed by our spiritual lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's the basis of, of our stance. But we move in a political realm because our world is political. Mm. And it, it's a tool like every other at our discretion. And we need to use it and shape it in our spiritual authority. Yeah. I'd also like to see what the people who came up with that theology look like because as a black American, <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like I don't have the li- the yeah, like 100%. liberty right. to right. be disassociated from yeah. the government. Right. It's it's not the government controls my life. Yeah, it's a to be, it's a privilege to be able to do that. It, it's mm-hmm. totally a privilege, yeah. and I absolutely don't have that privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do we think the church can do if a church is listening to this and wants to do something tomorrow? Yeah. What do we think is a good first step? Well, what do you think of the of, of like going to local black leadership? Whatever your church looks like, I don't think you can do it absent of your local black leadership. Yeah. And, 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 they, and it, they have to lead. Yeah. And I think it starts with your church leadership, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's a good idea to start having open conversations with the black people in your church that you relate to every day. Yeah. Asking mm-hmm. them what they think and not insisting that they have to have an answer right yeah asking black folks if they even want to have that conversation is a good start i think the church could also start fundraising for their own reparations funds and Mm -hmm. we started talking about that a little bit (laughs) we started talking about that a little bit on Uh our team my idea originally was uh (laughs) that maybe the church could fundraise and then give money to black families in the church but andrew made a really good point that he could just see the (laughs) newspaper article white church (laughs) has new idea for keeping black constituency they pay them to be there yeah so maybe that's not the best idea Uh Um, but maybe fundraising to give scholarships out at a local school mm-hmm. or paying off um, the debt of like a black school's uh, lunch, student lunches or right. something like that. Yeah. Uh, something really, mm-hmm. I don't know, something really yeah. moving, but There are practical. definitely imaginative ways that the church can get involved. I definitely think those are all great ideas. And I also agree that, that it, it needs to start with the idea that you mentioned earlier, which is just being in conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know what? One other bit of practical application. Pray about it. Yeah. There are so many prayers to God in in the Psalms and in the Old Testament, asking God for his justice, asking God, are you asleep? Are you mm-hmm. ignoring me? Yeah. Where is your justice? And I feel like that's that that has become the kind of regular part of the rhythm of my prayer as I see mm-hmm. our political moment. But especially looking at this, you you look at the magnitude of this injustice, Mm -hmm. and you have a God that says that he's just. Where is that justice, God? Yeah. Can you you show it to us? Yeah. And I think God wants us to ask him that. Yeah, I would totally agree. And I think God wants to comfort us in Mm -hmm. that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I need comfort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some of us us in that will need comfort. Some of us will need a call to action. Sure, Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, so for our final segment here, uh, what's the best thing you've consumed, which is just our way of saying, what do you into this week? I would say two things. Um, so I just finished Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, and it is really a fantastic book uh, that takes a really practical approach mm-hmm. of addressing white people 
as a group, I think there's oftentimes um, a leaning towards viewing white people viewing themselves as individuals, like I said earlier. Mm -hmm. But Robin D'Angelo puts an effort into uh, emphasizing that the white experience is a group experience and how to deconstruct those experience and how to really uh, check yourself in your internalized racism. And she does a really good job at the beginning of addressing the generalization she's going to make. Absolutely. Book. Yeah. She starts by saying, I'm going to be, when I say we and us, I'm going to be talking about white people. And mm-hmm. I was like, go ahead, girl. Yeah. And I just started Toni Morrison's Beloved. Oh. Um, it is really mm-hmm. beautiful. And yeah. it's and read, it's read by, by Toni Morrison. It's read by Toni Morrison. She's, and she reads her voices like velvet. Yeah, so it's, it's, I'm really into those. Voice. Yeah. I'm really into those two things this week. Nice. Um, I'm going to put in a plug for um, a former Circle of Hope person whose book I just picked up. It's young adult fiction, and I'm consuming it now, so I, it's not something I've actually read yet, but I'm excited about it. It's um, Randy Rebuy's Patron Saints of Nothing um, about a Filipino-American 17-year-old um, wrestling with the death of his cousin in the Philippines, and it's it's about the current political crisis of the country Um whose president is um, eradicating um, people on drugs in that mm-hmm. country. Yeah. Um, and it's not something I knew about before um, I heard about this book. Oh, wow. So it's a good introduction okay. to what's going on in the Philippines right now. Cool. Through the lens of a friend. Um, so I just watched a movie that came out, a Japanese movie from last year called Choplifters. Uh, it won the Golden Palm at Cannes last year. It's a really good movie. Uh, it's about um, the, the underclass in Japan. The end of the movie is, is heartbreaking. You have to see it. It's an incredible movie about a segment of people in Japan that you normally never hear about. But that's not what the best thing I've consumed this <laughs> week. All right, so this is going to sound ridiculous. but uh, So you guys know I eat trash in the sense that I like fast food. I, my excuse sometimes is that I drive around. I have to get fast food because of the yeah, nature of my job. Yeah, or... But sometimes I just I just want to eat fast food. Yeah. Um, the McDonald's on Walnut Street. All right. I had a Big Mac at the McDonald's on Walnut Street, and I don't know what it is about that second floor dining room, but it is amazing. It's clean. <laughs> it's quiet. There are high ceilings. There's barely anybody ever there, and just having a Big Mac in that room by myself during my lunch hour was a sublime experience that I recommend to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah that was um that was they need to make a commercial out of that Andrew. yeah mm, definitely yeah, all right well i well we know our first sponsor is going to be I, um, <laughs> this episode yeah, was sponsored by mcdonald's but specifically the mcdonald's that brought in walnut in center city philadelphia right. specifically that mcdonald's <laughs> and I'm only sorry. the second floor. i hope mcdonald's is on board with operations <laughs> yes oh boy but they've been losing money so they don't have the same money that they used to oh what does that even mean they're like all right. uh, okay, well, uh, that's everything we've got this week. Uh, special thanks to Joe Mahoney, our technical director, to Luke Bartolomeo, our communications manager, and Amy Young for our cool new logo. Yes, thank and you, Amy. also to uh, Megan Jackson for helping us figure out the Wi-Fi. Um, and also to Jared Selby for our theme song right now. Oh, you can also reach us at circlemobilizing at gmail.com. Yeah. Stay black, Little Mermaid.
there's no I'm one living. Bullets. All right. So joint. it is. Uh, we're in the middle of the, the of a massive East Coast heat wave, and we have to turn off the AC in order to record in this tiny room. I'm about to rip off my wig. It is so <laughs> hot in here. 